welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. Isaac Hernandez. I'm Marla. And I'm David. Today, we'll be discussing a paper titled The State of Spinal Cord Injury Respiratory Rehabilitation in Latin America which was published in the January-March 2022 edition of the Journal of the International Society of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This paper was suggested to us by Asia's Americas Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Isaac Hernandez, an associate professor for UT Health Houston, an SCI staff physician at at the Institute of Research and Rehabilitation at Memorial Hermann, program director of the SCI Fellowship, and Chair of America's Committee for the American Spinal Injury Association. Welcome, Dr. Hernandez. Hi, David. Hi, Marla. Thank you so much for having me and for having America's Committee represented in this great podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Dr. Hernandez, can you start off by defining respiratory rehabilitation within the context of spinal cord injury? I think it depends on who you ask and where you are from a certain point of view, because I think that how this would be defined is very, very different if we compare to the area where we practice, meaning here in the U.S. um, versus elsewhere in Latin America. Kind of touch on this um, on the paper, kind of outline it in that uh, there's not much as it relates to respiratory rehab going on in that region with some noted exceptions. And so if you were to ask a provider to define that down in Latin America, you may get a very different answer compared to here. I think that for us here and with me, of course, wearing my spinal cord injury physician hat, it's something very specific to our patient population that requires constant monitoring and assessment. And I think that the philosophy and the paradigm in which we address this specific item within spinal cord injury medicine is very unique and very specific. Whenever we work with respiratory therapists, with physicians, including pulmonologists, uh, you know, intensivists outside the rehab world, even them here in the U.S. oftentimes are surprised by how we approach our patient population that we know, you know, based on evidence is what, what is going to help our patients best. So it is an attempt to provide safety management of patients lungs. And from a certain point of view, in, in, in a more direct and specific way, not even the lungs themselves, but the musculature that allows us to breathe safely and whenever possible, independently. At the end of the day, as rehab providers, it's all about function, quality of life, and maximizing independence. And that is without a question, part of what we attempt to do from a respiratory point of view for our patients that oftentimes, you know, have this uh, limited capacity to, to breathe or breathe on their own. And uh, important to highlight, at the end of the day, I think that this is not exclusive to those with high cervical injuries that are on mechanical ventilation or that even have a, a tracheostomy. It is applicable to other patients. Let's not forget that the number one cause of death during the first year after spinal cord injury or pulmonary complications. And so this is why we care about this so, so much, certainly in the acute setting. Now, if you ask someone in Latin America, the answer should be the same. The differences are the awareness, the tools available, the know-how 
as it relates to being able to address all these complications from a rehab point of view. Because of course you will have pulmonologists and intensivists that are helping patients throughout the acute spectrum of care. But again, the philosophy and the paradigm is potentially different. And we certainly have confirmed that in, in our interactions with providers and with patients in Latin America. Yes, your survey gets at the settings a little bit, but could you expand on this, the difference in the settings, the ICU, inpatient, outpatient, that continuum, and the tools that are afforded here in the States versus Latin America? Yeah, definitely. Where to start? One thing to that I think is very relevant to highlight is the fact that inpatient rehabilitation is almost non-existent. In, in Latin America. And I think for the way that we do things here in the U.S., that's almost, almost difficult to imagine. How do our patients go from being in the ICU with an acute injury, then there's a big gap, and afterwards they are at home, and eventually end up in outpatient rehab, just to give an example. And please keep, let's, it's important to keep the following in mind. We're kind of lumping a whole region into one description, meaning Latin America, but we're talking about tens of countries, tens of countries that this region has, and every single country is different. Even if there are some cultural similarities within countries, and there are a lot, including from a language point of view, their healthcare system is completely different. So just to cite an example of one of the systems that I'm most familiar with due to some of our members is in Argentina, where... There's seldom an inpatient rehab unit. Now, patients can have access to government-facilitated aid. Let's, let's assimilate it to something like Medicare or Medicaid, although it's apples and oranges, where they have good access to outpatient care rehab-wise after their injury. But what I'm told is that this can happen one to two years after your injury. So although it's a great thing to have available, we all know, those of us listening to this, that that first one to two years are key, are essential. And by the time the patient comes to rehab, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, uh, we may have a way higher mountain to climb that we would have had if interventions had started way, way earlier. So from um, healthcare's uh, availability and structural point of view, there are huge differences. There are countries like Mexico who do have some inpatient rehab units. And to be clear, they're not the only one, but again, it's one of the ones I'm familiar with. But there is, I believe, one or two units in Mexico City. Probably combined, you're looking at less than 10, less than 10 or 20 or 40 beds. And this is not exclusive to SCI. It's just inpatient rehab in general. And so if you think of Mexico being a country with over 100 million people and having 10, 20, 40, 40 beds, well, that's, that's nothing, right? I am aware because of someone I know that, in, for instance, in Guadalajara, which is the second biggest city, they're just, they just opened, a, I believe it was a month ago, a, a rehab unit for neurological care. And I know that there's been attempts in the past by other providers, and it's just hard to sustain such a model. So I'm really hoping, of course, that things go, go positively. But structurally, that's a challenge. From a, a rehabilitation point of view, as it relates to respiratory care, as we highlight in the paper we did, only Mexico as a country has an official degree sponsored by, by a national university where you can subspecialize in respiratory rehab. 
actually one of the providers that helped us with this paper is, is one such graduate, if you will. Um, but this is not something that is available elsewhere in the region, at least not officially or formally. And to be clear, this kind of training, again, is not specific to spinal cord injury. It's general respiratory rehab training as it may apply to many other diseases or illnesses. I remember when I was an intern back home in Mexico doing a rotation in the pediatric rehab center, which was all outpatient. They had such providers and they worked a lot you know, with the pediatric population on applicable cases. But I can't even remember if there was a single one that was respiratory related. What I'm trying to say is there is a lack of subspecialization as it relates both to spinal cord injury and to uh, respiratory care uh, altogether. And the last piece I would add to just highlight yet more differences compared to how things are done here in the US is who does the respiratory rehab care? Um, many places don't have a respiratory therapist. That was actually something that was brand new to me when I first moved to the US and was exposed to the US healthcare system. That was a completely new position and job that I, I was not familiar with. Traditionally, at least in Mexico, in the ICU, the people doing the suctioning and the vent adjusting and all of that is a combination of um, nursing the former and the physicians the latter. And in many other parts of the region, um, and it, that may include Mexico nowadays, I haven't, haven't just practiced there in, in quite some time, is uh, physical therapists that are involved in this care. And by my understanding, at least not necessarily with formal training, but rather maybe something that is just inherited and based on experience and exposure. But I don't know to what degree it's like a formal certificate and that sort of thing. So clearly apples and oranges to try and make this, this situation work. If you allow me, I'll say one last thing. It is not that this kind of providers, of course, are not needed because we know they're essential for our patient success. But one thing that is very sad to say, yet true, is that there's no data that I can give you to support the following statement. It's all anecdotal, but you consistently hear it from Latin America that unfortunately a lot of the patients, especially the high cervical ones that have traumatic injuries, they die on the field because there's just not an infrastructure to allow them to be stabilized on the field, transported to an acute care center, and then you know go through the continuum of care uh, um, that, is, that we're familiar with here. So a lot of patients that would benefit from this kind of care and from this kind of providers don't even make it to that point. Yeah, you hit on exactly kind of one of my main thoughts when I initially read the paper and that's, you know, this quote unquote interdisciplinary plan of care that we always talk about here. You know, the great thing about rehab is we do everything with the interdisciplinary team. And it seems like what you're describing is almost like the interdisciplinary team is within one person in a lot of these countries. You know, it's a physical therapist that's doing the respiratory side of things, the physical therapy side of things, maybe doing some occupational therapy and they're responsible for multiple roles, which I think is really interesting. And I was just wondering, you know, your perspective on that, you know, how does, how does that differ from what we see at the large academic institutions, you know, that a lot of our listeners probably work at? And how do, you know, people and providers in Latin American countries where they don't have access to, you know, 30, 40 team members that each specialize in something so specific, how are they able to provide that type of care? 
I'm concerned with what you just said, Marla, that I'm gonna forget everything you, you made me think of as I was listening with the question because <laughs> there are so many, so many things that lit up in my head that I think are so so on point with what you said. In no particular order, and if I miss answering something, please remind me. But one of the things that came to mind first is when we started working with Latin America was at this point, I've forgotten, but it's probably been like four or five years. It was certainly before the pandemic started. But when the pandemic started, as we all know, you know, February, March of 2020, at least here in the U.S., we, are, we had just started working with one of our new members, which you guys know as well, Meli, Dr. Longoni, who, who I met two months before the pandemic started at a meeting in Peru. And one of the first things that we talked about when we met there is, hey, how would you feel about giving a talk to, you know, this uh, sessions that we're doing on a weekly or every other week basis for all of Latin America? And that triggered, you know, other conversations and a lot of collaboration. But what I'm trying to get at is we all know very well, and we're doing it right this minute, that with the pandemic really triggered and forced us to learn to communicate virtually and have this kind of meetings and, and this kind of um, you know, podcast sessions without having to be in person. Well, at least Dr. Longani's group, which she was part of and still is part of AMLAR, which is the biggest rehab uh, organization in Latin America for providers, they were doing it already. They were already having month, weekly and uh, every other week virtual teaching sessions and you know work collaborations. Um, for for months, if not longer. Now, in their case, they didn't do it because of a, they knew a pandemic was coming. Of course, they did it because of geography, because Latin America is a very big region and lack of resources. So they couldn't afford, you know, to to get together every month or every week in person to talk about this or that or to coordinate this or that meeting. They had to do it virtually. So they took advantage of what already existed. The reason I'm sharing this is number one to highlight the 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 you know the ingenuity of people, and this is not exclusive to Latin America. It's 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 applicable to anyone, but they were certainly making the best use of their resources. But also to say that just like they were doing that to do stuff for for amongst colleagues, if you will, they were already doing it from a telehealth point of view as well. That's not new in the US either, but I really think that the pandemic brought telehealth to the forefront of, of, you know, of what was the what were the tools available to us. At this point, I feel comfortable doing telehealth. I'm going to be doing it an hour after you and I are done today. Um, but back then I wasn't. And yet again, Latin America was very familiar with it already. And so I think that's been one of the biggest resources that they have brought to the table. And we're big in our committee, and I think Asia as well. We don't need to reinvent the wheel if it's already there. So they already had a fast track into using this. So we just kind of kept running with it, you know? And so just the other day I met with some other colleagues. Um, I, it was weird because all of them were in Spain. I was the only one here in the US. Usually we have to coordinate time zone arrangements. The other way around now was the one that had to make it work. And it was a research meeting, but my point is we're so used to it at this point. And this specific research that we're gonna do involves educating patients long distance um, in Latin America in Spanish and doing some interventions to see which, which works best. But my point is that there's already a lot that had been going on and that we're continuing to do long distance to help uh, bridge the gap in terms of the 
knowledge, education, and I don't know if the right word is assistance or just advisory role, if you will, because of course we cannot care for patients long distance, but we are constantly getting questions behind the scenes through WhatsApp, through email. Hey, we have such a case, you know, do we know someone in the region that can help out? What would one do about such and such a thing? And something that's been really interesting when we go to meetings in Latin America, patients show up. Sometimes the organizers bring them. Sometimes they just hear about it and they just wait for you after the meeting, kind of like, a, you know, like a kid waiting for a, for a soccer player after a match to get an autograph. But in this case, it's not for an autograph. It's for, for, for a clinical opinion. So, um, of course, that's something we cannot do either. But we do get with the providers locally that are helping out and, and kind of, you know, provide our two cents. So... I don't know. I feel like I didn't answer the whole question, though, Marla, but I, I, I'm hoping this is answering part of it, at least. No, you answered a lot of it. And I, I just really think it's super interesting topic. And one of the things that you kind of alluded to that I thought was interesting about the paper, too, and also about the, the difference in the interdisciplinary models of care is, you know, trainees, especially, you know, my experiences as a physician trainee. And so, I would just imagine that the training is just so incredible, you know, having to take on multiple roles. Now, there is no respiratory therapist, so maybe it's the resident that's having to learn this extra stuff so that they can better provide care for the patients. And they're sort of exposed to more knowledge, more education, just for virtue of having to be, and which may end up leading to a better trained physician in the long run, which I think is really an interesting point. And one of the great parts about the survey that you guys did is that you included trainees in the survey and you had almost a hundred percent respondents of the, you know, 400 plus respondents that wanted more education on the topic of respiratory rehab, which again is just like, it just shows that there's not only maybe a need, but there's a want to right. continue to provide this excellent care. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the training and about maybe anything that the America's committee is working on to maybe help provide some more education for these communities um, to continue just this process of, you know, these physicians uh, continuing with their spinal cord training. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're definitely not wrong, Marla, with what, what, what you just stated. And uh, it's, it's tricky, you know, because uh, we know that there's over a hundred residencies, rehab residencies in, in Latin America. So they vary from, most of them are three to four years long. Most residency programs are very outpatient based. And from that point of view, they're very based on musculoskeletal care, um, which is a big need, of course, as well, just like anywhere else. But it is more challenging in many parts of the region to address um, neurological rehab care in the inpatient setting like we talked about. There's only one, to our knowledge, one official fellowship training program in Mexico City at the National Rehab Institute. And it's not even spinal cord injury specific, it's neuro rehab. So, you know, they certainly target spinal cord injury. And we have several colleagues that we work with that really love spinal cord injury. But, you know, they're also addressing strokes and brain injury and, and, and the whole gamut. And so we are trying to do many different things to try to bring neuro rehab to the forefront, if you will. Part of the challenge is, you know, such a broad region, 
as we spoke about before we started recording, the biggest country doesn't even speak Spanish, which is what the, the language that most of us in our community have in common. We do have a subgroup that we work with from, from Brazil, which is a country I'm alluding to, of course. But uh, as it relates to the Spanish-speaking world, it's challenging because of the different things we talked about, you know, resources, time zone changes, the language barrier. A lot of people have the ability to read English, but not necessarily communicate in English. And the understanding uh, of, of the information trying to be conveyed uh, may vary widely. So both things that we have done and things that we're doing moving forward include you know, we've tried to focus on translating all essential or what we think are essential documents that are high yield for providers in Latin America. And that includes, among other things, all the um, 19 documents that the primary care committee has put together for primary care providers in spinal cord injury and spinal cord injury care. We've all translated them into Spanish and made available through the Asia website for free to Latin America. We've translated the Inski booklet up until the most recent revised 2019 uh, version. As we spoke about, there is a document that has been put together by the Rehab Standards Committee that focuses on durable medical equipment that we're in the works of translating that we think is going to be high, very high yield. And I want to highlight that document specifically right now, both because it's the most recent project we're working on, but also because one thing that we're so big on, and it takes us back to this interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary conundrum we talked about a minute ago, we're trying to target not just physicians and not just trainees, physician trainees, I should say, but rather all possible members of the rehab team, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, you know, psychology, nursing. When we first started this adventure, if you will, in this committee, uh, we early on ran into, quote unquote, there is no interest in spinal cord injury medicine in Latin America. And we really, we, we really did not want to accept that as truth. And, and I'm glad we didn't. And we kept going for it and we kept fighting. And, and we've identified a lot of people that have that interest. Uh, maybe in the big scheme of things, there's not, there are not that many, but I can tell you that it's in the hundreds. And so that is hundreds more than we knew of when we first started. And we've put together this nice little group that just keeps growing and expanding. And that includes all uh, uh, members of the interdisciplinary group or team. And so we're trying to put out content and information that is helpful for all those team members as well. Yes, Marla, you just mentioned a minute ago, for example, that perhaps a physician or a physician trainee ends up gathering new knowledge that that falls in the respiratory therapist arena, and you can get a physician trying to do a little bit of that. But just in the same way, in part, I think what the approach has to be, especially in a place with limited resources, is you may also have a therapist that jumps in a little bit into a, a physical therapist that jumps into the OT arena or vice versa or whatever it may be, right? Especially if you go to any big city in and I can't say that I know that this is a fact anywhere in the world, but certainly in Latin America, you go to a big city like Buenos Aires or Sao Paulo or Rio or Bogota, you're going to have a lot of resources and people that are probably more highly trained. But if then if you go to a rural area, you may have it just like we do here in the U.S., you know, like a, a provider, whoever that may be, that is wearing many hats at the same time out of necessity, right? And actually, that is something, speaking of trainees, I know this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's relevant if, if, if trainees are part of our listeners. 
something that I tell my trainees, both my students, my residents, and my fellows, is whenever we, I, I, I oftentimes bring up Latin American related topics, right? I just can't help myself. That's part of what I do, part of what my passion is. And I like to highlight to them that although we're talking about some, some place that is thousands of miles away, that speaks a different language, that has a different healthcare system and different resources, outside big healthcare centers, it's not that different as one would think. So if you go to the rural U, to rural US versus rural Bolivia, comparatively speaking, you're still dealing with not necessarily having an SCI trained provider and not having therapists that are familiar with neuro rehab or not having access necessarily to all the bells and whistles at an outpatient facility that you would if you were in a high-end Buenos Aires clinic, for example. So there is some overlap, even though we may on the surface not think there is. Coming back full circle to, to your original question, Marla, and one other thing that I definitely would like to highlight, um, and we spoke behind the scenes about this, is one of the other things that we're trying to do is to enhance our colleagues in Latin America's ability to highlight what they're already doing. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, we've put together already one research methodology course over the um, early fall of 2022. With a, a lot of success, if you ask us, a lot of interest, a lot of progress, we're planning on doing it again next summer. And what we're trying to do is the people that participated, because we had so many people apply, we had to select a limited amount of projects because we wanted to be hands-on and really be able to customize the, the advice and the, the education provided. But what our goal is, is this were not projects that started from scratch. People had done them or started them already. We just wanted to guide them. And by the way, I didn't do it. This is all part of our the researchers within our group that, that actually did the teaching. And what we're trying to do is make people realize that there are these platforms internationally available potentially to them with a lot of quality work where maybe they just need to identify who can help them translate it or who can help them, you know, just polish them with goals of getting such projects, you know, published admitted or uh, at, at a big conferences such as ours in our scientific meeting or whichever other one it is, because the know-how and the want, like you said, Marla, are there in many cases. And for those that may not have it, but are very interested, let's help provide it to them. I think that at least half of our participants last September were residents. And needless to say, this is open not only to, to, to physicians or physician trainees, but just to anyone. So our goal is to keep expanding on this to provide a bigger, greater, hopefully, platform. And one other thing, we did a pre-course last scientific meeting. I won't go into the details, but it was the first time that Asia did a pre-course with live translation into Spanish, and it happened very successfully. So that is something else that Asia has provided as a platform for to, to reach more, more people and reach others. Where can listeners go to find this as it's coming out? So uh, that is a good question, actually, because I can tell you that usually the way in which we go about sending this out are kind of behind the scenes. We have like a big uh, network through WhatsApp, if you will. So that's certainly one way. But I realize that a lot of uh, the listeners are not necessarily going to be connected to that. So the other way, certainly, uh, we do have uh, um, intermittent announcements that uh, like e-blast through Asia directly. And we do do them in Spanish and in English. So that's probably, specifically for our listeners, probably would be would be the best way. Great. All right. 
penultimate question here, Isaac. Sure. Between April 4th, 2020 and April 22nd, 2020, across a large geographic area and two languages, you guys received 1,162 survey responses, of which 468 were usable, which is fantastic. And I wonder if part of the response rate that you got was due to that being at a time in the pandemic when everyone was oriented toward, you know, a collective problem that we were all trying to solve together. So in that spirit, what do you think has been learned from the pandemic in the context of respiratory rehabilitation that might translate or carry over into the post-pandemic era? Well, that's an excellent question. And yes, I think you're right, at least partially, uh, uh, the ability to get such a high response rate would, would have had to do with, with what you described. The other thing that I would add to that is just let's just say knowing the right people in Latin America that can really disseminate you know, the, the, the call for, for our response. But you're right. I see we nowadays for other surveys that we've done, we do get very good response rates, not necessarily that high. And I think that there's also, and you probably guys will, will agree as well, some degree of, of virtual fatigue and, and, you know, like online fatigue from as a consequence of the pandemic, right? So that takes us into, I think, the, the more direct answer to your question, which is one thing that we have learned, it doesn't mean that we have mastered it or have a great solution for it yet. But one thing that we have learned is there's a lot to be learned long distance or virtually. It, it's such a fascinating tool that, like mentioned before, Latin America was already taking advantage of. The tricky thing, I think, is as it relates to hands-on learning, and we've ran into this constantly when we're trying to do INSCI related training and, and education, but it's potentially very applicable on the respiratory side as well, is to, tr to teach people how to, how to do this, how to help people, especially in a, in a part of the world where resources may be limited. And with some of the stuff that you emailed me prior to, to this, Marla, you got me thinking to, you know, what is one low hanging fruit that can be provided both to uh, uh, healthcare professionals and for that matter, patients and their family members that can be high yield is something as simple as what we informally call quad coughing, right? How do you teach quad coughing at a distance? There's nothing that from that point of view, in my opinion, uh, uh, like doing it hands-on, but if we cannot do that, the only thing that I can think of as second best is of course with a good video. But as you guys know very well from a production point of view, putting a good video together is not necessarily the most straightforward thing or the thing that can be done with limited resources or limited time. So we, there are things that we've spoken about this, and it's not only exclusive to rehab, uh, to respiratory rehab, but rather things that may relate to, you know, straight cathing, bowel programs, you know, turning, pressure releases, you know. A lot of the stuff that we would consider potentially some of the basics or bread and butter of SCI rehab care, but that are not necessarily done consistently across the board, for which you get very different outcomes across the region. One thing that we get consistently is that it's, I'm trying to look for the right word, like a constant requests for quote unquote a protocol for how to care for an SCI patient. And what we tell them is that we don't have a protocol per se. You know, it's 
it's a whole residency, three or four years of training, plus minus an extra year of additional SCI training, plus minus all the years or months or decades of expertise that different providers have. And it's bringing all of that put together. So it's not easy, but we're trying to grab the bits and pieces that could be potentially the most high yield. And you know, whether it's through a video, whether it's through written information that's been translated, whether it is through manuals that we have put together, um, it's just trying to chip away. And it feels like an insurmountable mountain, I guess, to climb. But if I look back at where we were four or five years ago, I will say, I will, I have to say, I think that my our committee members would would not like me if I didn't, that we're definitely proud of what we have accomplished, but we also do think that you know the to-do list instead of getting shorter gets longer because we more things keep coming keep coming up more ideas keep coming up and and the, the enthusiasm continues to grow so whether it's related to the pandemic whether it's not related to it but just as to how we can continue to put in our two uh, our two grains of salt towards towards improving the care of SCI in in Latin America. Um, we we still I think feel that we're just getting started, and now that you know the opportunity to travel has opened up at least partially further, that just has allowed us to you know to be more present and to continue to do so. Because there's nothing, if you ask me, and I'm gonna maybe sound old school or something as being hands on with a lot of what we want to do and need to do. Seems like a perfect way to wrap this up. <laughs> Anything you want to say in closing? The only thing I would say is number one, thank both you, David, and Marla. And I know there's, a, I'm sure there's other behind the scenes people for not only the invitation that that goes without saying, but for for taking on this project. Uh, I have I have a bias towards podcasts, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I think it's awesome, and uh, thank you for giving us uh, the opportunity to expand our voice for for what we're trying to do and highlighting some of the some of the research that we've pursued. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Communication Committee. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Education Committee. This podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, David McMillan, that's me, and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Conception, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com.